Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, 51 is the verse we're going to start, and our text is going to go all the way through chapter 10, verse 24. So Luke 9, 51 through 10, 24, as we consider, as we continue rather, this series through the middle of Luke's gospel. No doubt we'll finish up Luke's gospel uh, eventually. I think after this we'll do some Psalms, but as we continue this series, if you have one of the Red Bibles, Luke 9.51 is on page 868. And for the reading of God's Word prior to the sermon, I'm not going to read the entire text, but I do want to read 9.51 through 10.12. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Luke 9.51, and then we'll read until Luke 10 verse 12. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Boxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you... Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord, sent, and the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we ask now that you would enable us to have ears to hear your word. We know amidst all the distractions and just the dullness of our hearts on any given moment, we could hear your word and it could have no effect on our hearts. 
So we ask that your spirit would enable that not to be the case. But instead of having dull and hardened hearts, we would have soft hearts ready to receive, ears that can hear and understand, minds that, that grasp and hearts that love and want to obey your word. Continue to shape us and make us like your son, Jesus Christ, as we hear this text. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In Matthew 27, Pilate stands before the crowd. They've cried out to him that they want Barabbas, a criminal, a rebellious man to be released. And so Pilate asked this question in Matthew 27, 22, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? That really is a question that all of us must ask and answer for ourselves. What then shall I do? with Jesus, who is called the Christ. You see, with Jesus' arrival, history was split in two. Paul in Acts 17 can speak of a time of ignorance that God overlooked. For the Old Testament believer, they were ignorant of much. They could hope in God's promises and be faithful in that sense without knowing that the Messiah's name would be Jesus, or necessarily that He would die on a Roman cross or be raised from the dead on the third day. There was a time of ignorance. But Paul says, but now, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteous, and he's proven this by raising him from the dead. Now, now that Jesus has come and lived and died and been raised from the dead, now everyone must come face to face with what they will do with Jesus, who is called the Christ. There is no name under heaven whereby men must be saved except for the name of Christ. And so as you and I, indeed, as every human being on the face of the earth asks and answers that question, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? The reality is there are only two choices. Either we will bow the knee, repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Him, acknowledging that He is our Lord and that we must obey all that He commands, or we will reject Him. There is no middle ground. And those two responses, following Jesus as Lord or rejecting Him, are really what our text is about this morning. If you look at Luke 9, 51 through 10, 24, you'll notice that every paragraph, every section of this text is explaining to us what is true about those who reject Christ and what it means for those who follow Christ. Every paragraph falls in one of those two categories. And I think the reason is because Luke takes these teachings and these episodes in Jesus' life and he puts them together to focus us on those realities, the realities concerning rejecting Christ and what it means to follow him. And so that's what I, how I want to outline the text this morning. What I want to do is I want to note two things that are true about those who reject Christ, and then I want to note two things about what it means to follow Christ as our Lord. So let's start then with those who reject Christ. And first, I want us to see that those rejecting Jesus will not bear the Lord's full wrath in this age. Those rejecting Jesus will not bear the Lord's full wrath in this age. Now, that may be a surprising point for us to hear. We may most naturally think 
If somebody is going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, who right now is the crucified and risen and exalted king who reigns over the whole universe, if they're going to reject him, then they're going to face God's furious wrath instantly and immediately in this life. But that's simply not the case. Let me show that to you in our text this morning. The text opens with Luke writing in 951, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Many commentators have rightly noted that Luke 951 is really a turning point in Luke's gospel. At this point, all the way until the end, Jesus is fixated. His eyes are fixed. To use the language of Isaiah 50, he has set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He is on his way to the place where he will suffer and die and be raised for his people. And so, because he is heading toward Jerusalem, the quickest way there was to go through the village of the Samaritans. So what Jesus does is he takes some messengers, he sends them on ahead, he says, prepare our way, we're going to go through the village of the Samaritans. Well, when those messengers get there and they share the news, Jesus and his disciples are going to come through here, they are rejected. Jesus is rejected. And because they are rejected, James and John ask Jesus in chapter 9, verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, when we immediately read that, my guess is we're thinking, good grief, guys. Someone's a little testy, right? That escalated quickly. And it does feel like that if you just look at it in context. They're rejecting Jesus. They, what do you want us to call fire down from heaven? But we need to put some context to it. Now, in our day and time, when somebody says something outlandish and you have the whole thing, oftentimes they say, well, you have to hear the context. And you're going, we heard the whole thing. But in this occasion, we really do need to understand the context. You see, first of all, there is precedent for this kind of thing. In 2 Kings chapter 1. There's a king named Ahaziah, and Ahaziah one day fell and hurt himself, and he was injured so badly, it looked like he could possibly die. And sure enough, he wants to know the answer to that question. Am I going to recover? Am I going to die? So he sends some of his men, and he says, I want you to go, and I want you to consult basically what would amount to a false god, and see if those representatives of this false god will give you answers. Now, Ahaziah was the king in Israel. I mean, he was a king who should have worshipped the God of Israel. And so Elijah, the prophet in that time, stops these men on their way, basically saying to them, how dare you go and consult a false god? Is the God of Israel not the God who reigns? Go tell Ahaziah, sure enough, you are going to die. This, this, this illness, this, this uh, you know, disability, whatever that's come upon you from falling, it's going to kill you. So the messengers go back to Isaiah. They say to him, we've spoken to a man. He says, you're going to die. He says, who is this man? They say, it's Elijah. He sends 50 men to go back to Elijah and say, Ahaziah wants you to come to him. When these 50 men go, Elijah's sitting on a hill. The 50 men say, Elijah, come down from the hill. And you know what Elijah does? He calls down fire from heaven and consumes them. Didn't see that coming, did you? Right? <laughs> then... It happens again. The king sends 50 men. Those 50 men, Elijah, come down from the hill. The king's demanding you come hear him. Elijah calls down from fire from heaven again. It consumes them. It happens a third time, and Elijah is very gracious. 
The men are humbled. They're not consumed. But it's happened before. There is precedent. Not only that, but if the precedent before was Ahaziah did not recognize the God of Israel, how much more blasphemous is it that when God the Son takes on flesh and is standing in your midst and you refuse to allow Him to come through the town? It's not totally outlandish to ask the question, Jesus, do you want us to ask fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Right? And yet, we read in verse 55, but He turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. You see, the reason that Jesus did not call down fire from heaven immediately and consume them, though it would have been in one sense appropriate, right? They're blaspheming the Son of God. The reason Jesus does not do that is because those who reject Jesus are not facing God's full and final wrath in this age. Jesus makes clear in John 3:17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, Jesus' first coming, when He first came into the world, He wasn't coming to bring judgment. He was coming to bring salvation for those who would bow the knee to Him. And so, the first truth we then need to understand is that those rejecting Jesus will not bear God's full wrath in this age. But why is that important? What's important for a few reasons. One, if you're an unbeliever, one thing you may be telling yourself this morning is that you're okay because you know you've been rebelling against Jesus Christ. You know you have not bowed the knee to Him. You know you do not recognize Him as Lord. You know you're not seeking to obey His commands. But the thing that you're comforting yourself with is, but that's okay because nothing's bad is happening to me. If, if, if this were all real, surely He would do something. If there really were a God, surely He would strike out against me. There might be fire come down from heaven and consume me. But I want to say to you, don't comfort yourself with the reality that you're walking in sin and you seem to be getting away with it. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1, one of the ways that God begins to show His wrath toward individuals is not by raining fire down from heaven, but is by giving them over to their sins, making it look like they're getting away with it. The second thing, the second reason why this truth is important for us is because as believers, we can sometimes feel ourselves bending to the pressure of this world because it looks like those who are disobeying Jesus are getting away with it. And as believers, we might find ourselves saying, well, I'm working very hard to obey Jesus. He's not or she's not, and it seems like their life is going fine. Do not allow that reality, that perception, that just because they're not facing God's full wrath now, don't let that cause you to bend to the pressure of this world, to make your knees buckle and you compromise in obeying Jesus Christ. So the first thing the text then teaches us about those who reject Jesus is that those rejecting Jesus will not bear the Lord's full wrath in this age. But, number two, those rejecting Jesus will face terrible judgment in the age to come. Those rejecting Jesus will face terrible judgment in the age to come. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Jesus sends out 72. This is very similar 
to what he did in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Remember when he sent out the 12 in chapter 9, 1 through 6, and to have them preach the kingdom of God and heal diseases and cast out demons? Well, now he does it not with the 12, but with 72 others. And when he sends them out, he sends them out in a way to make them absolutely dependent on those to whom they were going. He told them not to take an extra knapsack, not to take sandals, not to take all of these things. I think they were able to take the sandals on their feet, no doubt, but nothing extra. Now, I think the reason that Jesus did this, told them to take so little with them, is because when they came into the town, because they had nothing to provide for themselves, they didn't have big bags of food or clothing or anything that they could provide for themselves over that time with, it forced those in the towns to have to either receive them or reject them. It forced them to make a decision. And interestingly, when you go down to verse 16 of chapter 10, Jesus is going to remind the disciples, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So this was no small matter, Jesus sending out the disciples into towns with very little so that they would be forced to be taken in or forced to be rejected. Now, Jesus gives them instructions. If you go into a town and they receive you and they take you in, you need to stay at the place where you're at. You know, this, is, this isn't an occasion for you to sit down and, and the people bring you in and say, we're going to serve you dinner. And as you're eating dinner, thinking, this is a pretty good dinner. You smell the neighbor, you know, grilling out. You're like, tomorrow night, maybe we should try their cuisine. No, no, no. Jesus says, just stay where you are. This isn't a time to be greedy for gain. Just, just stay, right? Be content. Bless with peace those who receive you. They're providing for you. This is a good thing. But then he also says to those who reject you, you shake the dust off your feet. Specifically, he says in verse 12, he says in verse 11, rather, I'll go back to verse 11. Even the dust of the town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come. Wipe the dust off your feet, pronounce to them this, this rejection of them, even as they've rejected you. And Jesus adds then this note in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, the reference to Sodom is a reference to an Old Testament city. Remember in Genesis chapter 18, as Abraham is talking to the Lord because God says he's going to judge Sodom, and sure enough, he wipes out that city. Sodom was a notoriously sinful people. But Jesus says of these people who are rejecting his disciples, who are rejecting him, that on that day, it will be more bearable for Sodom than for them. That is, they're all going to face judgment but their judgment is going to be harsh. But what I want to note for us is the phrase in verse 12, on that day. I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. When Jesus says on that day, what day is he referring to? The day that he's referring to is the day of judgment. You see, the Bible makes clear that though those who reject Christ will not face his full wrath in this age, they will face his full wrath on the day of judgment. Jesus provides the scene for us in Matthew 25 as he gathers an enormous group of people in front of him and he separates them, the sheep 
his people from the goats, those who have rejected him, those who do not know Christ, and those who are not his, those whom he does not know and who don't know, do not know him as Savior and Lord will face eternal fire. There is a day of judgment coming. But he not only makes it clear in verse 12 by saying on that day, it will be more bearable, but rather in verses 13 through 15, he mentions again judgment. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sinning in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus says to Chorazin and Bethsaida, you may comfort yourself in thinking that you are rejecting the Christ and nothing is happening to you. But I'm telling you, in the judgment, even Tyre and Sidon who have rejected me, yes, they will face judgment, but you even harsher judgment. Jesus isn't shy in what he speaks here nor throughout all of the gospels. He is not shy about the reality of judgment. There is a judgment coming, and it will be terrible. It will be furious, merciless wrath. Several years ago, there was a, I don't know what it was, a, a sort of uh, network online, a group where you could get on and chat and say things about yourself or say things about others. Really, it was just a chamber for gossip. And I remember it was called Topics, and I remember one day looking at Topics and thinking, hey, I, I wonder if I'm on Topics for anything, which is not a good idea. That's like looking up your illness on Google or something, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so I pulled up Topics, I put in my name, and sure enough, there was a guy uh, there slandering me. But the first thing that he said to slander me, I thought, well, good grief, I'll own that. He said, I went to that church, and what the pastor said is that Jesus would not let people go to hell, but he would throw them there. I stand by that because that's exactly what the Bible says. On the day of judgment, he will cast into the lake of fire those who do not know him, those who have not bowed the knee to Christ as Lord. Now, <clears throat> this I want to be something that if you know You've never bowed the knee to Christ in faith. I want you to hear this. There is a terrible judgment coming. And on that day, you will not stand. And you will know, according to the book of Revelation, torment that lasts forever and ever without end. But you do not have to face God's wrath. I want to urge you, I want to plead with you to turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. If you do not know Christ, I want to plead with you, flee from the wrath to come and flee to the Son. But it may be that some of you are sitting right now comforting yourself with the reality that you're saying to yourself, but I am not one who has rejected Christ. I profess Christ. If you asked me, are you a Christian? I would say, yes, I am saved. And so let me remind us as well. In Matthew 25, in the most amazing thing, I, th I think maybe, maybe one of the most amazing things you'll read in the Bible, 
is that when Jesus tells for us in Matthew 25 what the judgment would look like, he's going to say to the sheep, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he's going to say to those who are the goats that they are to go into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And according to Matthew 25, there will be individuals who do not know Christ, individuals who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and they have the audacity to argue with Jesus that they really are saved. That's how Matthew 25 paints the picture. Jesus will say, depart, and some of them will say, no, 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 Jesus, we do know you. We did this, and we did this, and we did this in your name. And he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. One of the things I want to say to you is if you profess to be a Christian and even will argue with someone, I am a believer, but you are not pursuing obedience to Christ's commands, you may well be one of those who on that last day, because you would argue with one of us, will argue with Jesus and you will lose that argument. Jesus tells us, in John 14, 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you are unwilling to obey the commands of Christ right now, but you comfort yourself by saying, I know I am saved, you may simply be like those on the day of judgment who have the audacity to argue with Jesus but be cast into like a fire. And so I want to plead with you. Now, repent of your sins and look to Christ in faith. So those are two truths that we see about those who reject Christ. Those who reject Christ will not face God's full wrath in this age, but those rejecting Jesus will face terrible judgment in the age to come. But now we also see two truths about following Jesus and what it means. So number three, Following Jesus comes with great cost in this age. Following Jesus comes with great cost in this age. In chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, Luke tells us of three different individuals that Jesus encounters who seek to follow him, and yet Jesus warns them of the cost. First, we read in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus wants to make clear, I want you to follow me, but you have to understand, following me comes with cost. You may need to leave the comfort of your home or other things that feel to you comfortable or familiar. Jesus, following Jesus will require us possibly to give up things. Or in verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let leave the dead to bury their own, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, this one can be confusing to us. So let's dive into it just a little bit. One, when the man tells Jesus, I want to bury my dead father, I don't think it's because his father has just died. In Israel, at that time, in that time and place and culture, when someone died, you had to bury them quickly. The body would be decomposing. So I don't think there's a situation where this man's father has died, and the man's going, you know, I got a few days just to wander around town and run into Jesus. No, this is a situation, I think, not where the man's father's died, 
And he's asking, Jesus, can I just bury my deceased, recently deceased father? There's his body right there. No, I didn't think that's what's going on. I think he's rather saying to Jesus, I'll follow you, but I would like to wait around until my father dies and then take care of that, bury him. Then, when all that's behind me, then I'll follow you. Second, when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, that doesn't make sense to us if he's speaking merely, let the physically dead bury the physically dead. They obviously can't do that. I think what he's saying is, let the spiritually dead, like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Individuals outside of Christ are dead in their sins. I think he's saying, let individuals who are dead in their sins prioritize other things above me, but not you. If you're going to follow me, you must prioritize me above all else, even your family. So following Jesus may well cost us what is comfortable and familiar. It may well require us to leave our family. It definitely causes us to prioritize Jesus above our family. But then third in verse 61, yet another Jesus said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer makes clear just practically, if you think about a plow, if you're plowing a field, but you're constantly looking back, you're not going to be able to plow in straight lines, are you? I, I know just through push mowing, that doesn't work that way. What Jesus is saying here is you can't have divided, a divided heart. You can't say, I want to follow Christ, but I still want to turn back and dive into this world. I still want to look back at what I've left and make those things more important to me. Jesus says, no, no, no. You must be one who is fully committed to me. We must obey Jesus, prioritize Jesus, and be willing to give up everything, even if necessary, die to follow Jesus. Following Jesus requires great cost in this age. And I think this is actually one of the most important messages that we as believers right now, in this time, in this place, in this culture, need to understand. And the reason why is because it's very tempting for us to have conversations with individuals, much like the conversations Jesus is having here, and the temptation is not to answer like Jesus. Think about individuals to whom you speak, and they say, maybe your kids say, can I watch this movie, can I watch this show, and you say, no, there are sexually immoral images in that that you don't need to take part of. And they answer with something like, but I'm the only one who's not watching it. If, 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 if I don't watch it, I won't be able to have this conversation with my friends because everybody else is doing it, right? This is one of those Luke 9, 57 through 62 kind of moments, isn't it? And your answer is, I understand. There's some cost to this, but it costs to follow Christ. But let's ratchet it up a little bit. To the couple that's dating, and you tell them, do not walk in sexual morality. And they say, but everyone else is walking down this road. This is such a high standard that, that no one else is doing it. This is just how the world works. And our answer to them is, I know that's how the world works. Following Christ's costs. Or let's ratchet up a little more. What about to the individual who says, I feel same-sex attraction. And you're telling me that I cannot act on that. 
that as a man, I cannot join myself intimately to another man as my own. If that's what you're telling me, as a woman to a woman, if that's what you're telling me, they may say, listen, you are dooming me to a life of loneliness. You're dooming me to a path where I'm going to have all kinds of struggle, not having someone at my side, much like a man might have a woman as his wife at his side, or a woman, a man as her husband at her side. And you know what our answer is? Following Jesus costs. We could go on and on and on. No doubt we've evangelized somebody before who's lost a loved one. And as you share the gospel, they say, if I recognize that's true, then I'm going to have to acknowledge that my loved one is in hell. And our answer is going to be, you follow Christ. This is the way Jesus answers. I think the great difficulty for us in our day is that we somehow feel a greater sense of of empathy or desire to, to want to make following Christ easier than Jesus says following Christ is. And if we give into that, if we give into that sense of wanting to make it easy for others to follow Jesus, then I promise we will find ourselves compromising on His commands. That's the way it works. And so you and I must stand firm, understanding, yes, it costs to follow Christ. This is what Jesus made clear. It costs you and me as well. And all of us, every one of us who has been called to follow Christ has been called to take up our cross and ourselves to die daily. So following Christ costs, comes with great cost in this age. But then finally, number four, following Jesus brings greater blessings than we can imagine now and in the age to come. Following Jesus brings greater blessings than we can imagine now and in the age to come. In verses 17 through 20, these 72 who are sent out come back to report to Jesus. In verse 17, they come back and we read in that verse, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This starts an interesting dialogue. Jesus answers them in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think what Jesus is saying there is sometimes we will only think of God's work of salvation as something that saves his people. That's true, God saves his people, but while he does it, he also judges his enemies, doesn't he? Remember Genesis 3.15, the promise that the offspring of the woman, the serpent would bruise his heel and he would crush the serpent's head. When you look at the cross and you see Jesus dying, that's the bruising of his heel. But it's also the crushing of the serpent's head. Our enemy has been dealt a fatal blow at the cross. So here's Jesus on that side of the cross, hearing the news, and I think he's announcing to the disciples, you are getting a foretaste of the judgment to come. You're getting a foretaste by casting out these demons. They are getting a foretaste, we might say. They're getting a foretaste of the judgment that is coming their way, even as Satan himself will be cast down. It is true that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is a ruthless enemy. But he is a ruthless enemy because he knows his time is short. 
He knows his day has come. In fact, in verse 19, Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, when he says that, I don't think he's saying to us, literally, go out and step on scorpions and snakes, and nothing will happen to you. This isn't a verse telling us to dive into that snake-handling service. I think he's using serpents and scorpions as a picture of the power of the enemy. And what he's saying to you is, listen, if you belong to me, your enemy, as ruthless as he is, and as much harm as he can cause in our lives, cannot touch your soul. You cannot be harmed by him. Nothing shall hurt you as you aggressively go forth with the gospel, pushing against the gates of hell themselves. Nothing will hurt you. And yet, as good of news as that is, Jesus says, but I want to tell you there's something better. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When Jesus says that your names are written in heaven, he's making reference to uh, the book of life. This is this book that on the final day, if indeed your name is in that book, you belong to Christ and will dwell with him forever. Jesus says what you need to rejoice in is the fact that when this life is all said and done, you will be with me forever. Yes, following Jesus brings great cost in this age, but it also brings eternal life in the age to come, which is far greater. But that's not the only blessing it brings. It's not only that we we live our lives as believers only knowing eternal life is ours in the kingdom, eternal life is ours at the resurrection, We also are blessed now. We see that in verses 21 and following. In verse 21, Jesus ends this section in one of the most amazing ways we could imagine. Just listen to what he says. First, in verse 21, we read, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus here rejoices and thanks his Father for the reality that God in his sovereignty, God in his utter control of all things, has decided, I will not reveal these things to those who are wise, but I'll reveal these things to those who are something like little children, those who are nothing. This is the same kind of reality we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember, Paul will say to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were noble, Right now, many of you were were of impressive stature or wealth, but God chose the things that are nothing, that are not, to bring to reality, to give life where there was death. This is Jesus, first of all, thanking his Father because his Father and his sovereign will has decided to reveal himself to those who are weak, to those who are not wise, to those who are not impressive. Then, Jesus speaks about himself. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he's just said, I think you, Father, because you have utter control. You are the sovereign God who decides who will and who will not do X and do Y, who will know you and who will not know you. And now he says, all things, the one that I've just declared as sovereign, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus is now saying the very sovereignty 
that I've spoke of my father exercising is mine as well. He has that. We're going to see that very clearly in a second. But then he continues. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows who the son is except the father. Now, that's not a very great statement necessarily. No one knows who the son is except the father. I mean, there's a sense in which every one of us could say something like that. No one knows Lee, if I were to speak of myself in third person, like Jesus does here. No one knows Lee except God, right? No one knows me in and out perfectly except God. That's not a very impressive statement, right? No one knows the Son except the Father. But listen to what he says next. And no one and, or, uh, I'm sorry, all things are handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. So it's one thing to say, no one knows the Son except the Father, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He also says, no one knows the Father except the Son. It's one thing for me to say, no one knows Lee but God. Yeah, that's fine. But then if I said, and no one knows God but Lee, that's a big statement. That's what Jesus is saying. No one knows the Son except the Father, but no one knows the Father except the Son. Jesus is saying, I alone perfectly know my Father. Now, a lot of unbelievers will say Jesus is a good moral teacher. If they say that, you take them to this text. And you say, what good moral teacher claims to be the only one who knows the Father? No one knows the Father except the Son. But he doesn't stop there. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And, Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says, the only one who knows the Father is the Son. And, Anyone to whom I decide to reveal the Father, they also can know the Father. This is reminding us again that the only way to know the Father is through the Son, but it's also reminding us that the very sovereignty that Jesus rejoiced in His Father exercising. Father, you've hidden these things to some, you've revealed them to others, you've handed all things over to me, so that seems sovereignty that you you exercise, I have as well, and I exercise it. No one knows you except me and anyone to whom I decide to reveal you. And then, Jesus, we read in verse 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus says to his followers, you need to realize how blessed you are. I think that's the point of us reading this text as well. If you know God, if you're a child of God, it's because His Son has been pleased to reveal Him to you. Your knowledge of God is solely because of the grace of Jesus Christ to you. In other words, if you are a believer, if you say, I'm the one that fits points three and four, not verses one, not points one and two, right? I'm not those who, who reject Jesus. I'm those 
who accept Jesus. I'm one of those who have bowed the knee to Jesus and accepted him as Lord. If that's the case, it's not because you're wiser than those who reject him. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're better. It's not because you're more moral. It's because God in his grace has revealed who he is to you. That's what Jesus says. And he says to you, you need to realize how blessed you are. This is something that Paul rejoiced in. Remember in Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul opened that letter to the Ephesians. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So now Paul has said, praise be to God, right? Blessed be God. I'm going to worship God. And now I'm going to list a number of things that God has done for which he should be praised. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What's the first one that comes to mind? He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul is not embarrassed at the reality that he has been made an object of God's rich grace. Rather, he sees it as a reason for praise. And we should do the same. When the scripture reveals things to us like God's sovereignty, it's not so that we might think much of ourselves, it's actually rather so that it might humble us. And so that we might make much of him. That we might say with Paul, I am what I am solely by the grace of God. And when we are captured in our hearts at the grace of God that has been shown us in knowing Him, it should move us to long for others to know Him as well. Which is why we need to obey Jesus' command in chapter 10, verse 2. When he said to the 72, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. There is great blessing in following Jesus Christ. One, we're going to have eternal life. We have forgiveness of sins. But we also get to live our lives knowing that we have been made the objects of his rich grace. That we know him only because he has been kind to us. And that should move us to want many others to go out because the very means that Jesus uses to reveal himself to others is through our preaching of the gospel. So let's pray that the Lord would raise up many and send them out. And so let's ask ourselves then this morning, the question Pilate asks in Matthew 27, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And my prayer is that our answer will be we will recognize him as our Lord who has made us his own by his grace and we will obey him in all things, following him no matter what it cost us. And so this morning, one of the ways that we're going to show that that's our response to this word is by coming to the table. We've mentioned a number of times the ordinances, these visible symbols are given to us by Christ whereby we can visibly proclaim that we've heard his word and we're now visibly proclaiming we choose to receive it. If you're not a believer this morning, here's what I want to ask you to do. Not to come to the table. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ and then tell one of us and then proclaim that, visibly proclaim that you've heard Christ call to you and your answer is yes, by faith I will follow you as my Lord by being baptized. And by baptism, you'll be showing visibly, proclaiming visibly that you've been united with one who lived and died, was buried, and has been raised from the dead. If you are a believer this morning, you're in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, I want to invite you to come to the table. 
so that as we come to the table, we can celebrate and give thanks for the fact that God in His grace has made us His own. And we'll be visibly proclaiming that by His grace, we will now walk in obedience to Him, whatever the cost. We're going to take a moment of silence as we come to the table, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll come. We'll come just each row, one after the other, the first followed by the second, followed by the third, so on and so forth, exiting to the outside, coming around, taking one stack of two cups, the bottom one is bread, the top one is juice, entering back to your row to the inside, and then once all have received and all are seated, we'll then eat and we'll drink together. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.